Hey there, you're welcome to Founders Connect, a show where I have conversations with amazing entrepreneurs and operators in Africa. This is the right show for you to be listening to if you love behind the scenes stories about people, their careers, and not your businesses. My name is Pissy Timmy, and I'm very, very, very delighted to be your host. You can follow this conversation on social media, hashtag Founders Connect. You can watch the video of each episode on my YouTube channel at PCTME or just search for Founders Connect on YouTube to find the playlist. Also, please share this podcast, subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, leave a rating, and you know, share it, hashtag Founders Connect. Enjoy the episode. Today, I'm having a conversation with my own founder, <laughs> Bill Lyon. He's the founder of Hover Development Services, also the founder of Stacks. I'm going to learn all about him and his journey into the African tech ecosystem and you know why he's building the product Stacks. So stay and watch this video to the end. I'll see you. Hi, Ben. Hey, Peace. Are you good? Doing well. Okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to learn more about you. I'm hopeful that I will learn more about you that I do not already know. Let's, let's pull the threads. <laughs> okay, right. so let's start from like what growing up was like for you. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I grew up all over the American South. Um, all over? Pretty all over. I moved, um, I think the longest I lived anywhere as a child was maybe five years. Um, my dad was retired military and then was a hospital administrator. They transferred him all over. Um, so I grew up in like Texas, Arkansas, West Virginia, Kentucky, uh, and some others. Um, but yeah, just moved a lot. Um, really was interested in kind of, um, you know, the outdoors and the kind of found this was really an accidental path really for me. You know, when I when I graduated uh, college, I was thinking like I would go work for government and kind of follow the, the family yeah. tradition, which would be working in government. Um, but I graduated in the recession with a liberal arts degree. So, you know, 2009, great recession happens. Not a great time to have a liberal arts degree, <laughs> you know. Um, Basically, a liberal arts degree tells you, like, you know how to learn, uh, but you don't necessarily have hard skills. And so right. I go out into the job market and uh, I look for work in Washington, D.C. for about a year. I don't get hired for anything, literally nothing, nothing. Uh, and, you know, student bills were coming due. And so I was looking like, can I go work at a restaurant? Can I work anywhere? Can I be, uh, you know, one of the people that uh, like a marshal that helps people bring into the into a court? And so I, I really looked for a year and kind of was. Um, aimless, I think. Um, but I had in college, I'd, I'd, my grandfather who had um, grown up a little bit in Congo, he was a, a missionary and he partially raised my mother there. Right. Um, he had in college taken me abroad for the first time. We went to Southeast Asia, um, Singapore, Indonesia, East Timor. And for me, that was like a really eye-opening experience. Mm -hmm. You come from, you know, the American South is a weird place. Um, and we uh, coming out of that seeing like the vibrancy and the infrastructure of Singapore and then we went to uh, Indonesia we were in this place that had just been affected by a significant earthquake so you've got kind of massive uh, damage and then we went to East Timor during effectively a period of civil war and for me that was that was really like shook me by the shoulders to kind of right. wake up to the world and what's happening to it and coming out of that experience while I was still in college I was wondering like what can I do if anything to contribute mm -hmm. in in these settings to do something um, to help people and um, and so you know after I graduated college and I'm looking for work and I'm getting nothing I'm just kind of getting fed up and, and still that desire was there um, and I'd had some experience in um, northern Uganda and so I thought like look this is a passion of mine I'm really interested in East Africa from some time there mm. um, and I'm just gonna double down on this this idea that you know like microfinance and and this new thing mobile money um, have some some synergy that's that's really important for people um, and so just kind of randomly after looking for work for a year I had met some guys on Twitter uh, and somehow we started a company together and so my first job out of college was founding a, a merchant aggregator company in Kenya called Copo Copo. Interesting. Um, so after that year you basically just moved to Kenya and started Copo? I moved in November 2010 and then I lived in Kenya for about five years. That's uh, very interesting. Yeah. So before we talk about Copo Copo, um, you said you lived all over the South America, yeah. right? Um, what was your favorite city? Oh gosh, 
probably Memphis is really the only right. proper city I lived in. And so um, I was born in Johnson City, Tennessee. I went to college in Memphis, so I've got a little Tennessee kind of in my roots, but I really mostly kind of identify as an Arkansan. But Memphis, I'd say, is you know great food city, incredible music, um, really like a cultural hub. Um, so that was my favorite. And I'd say next to that would be like DC or Seattle, but that came after as I was an adult. Right, so yeah. um, what was your favorite memory growing up? Favorite memory growing up? That's a tough one. Um, <laughs> Too many? Yeah, I had I had a good childhood. Um, you know, I grew up in an environment where I was loved and, you know, I really wasn't exposed to much challenge, you know, mm -hmm. so pretty privileged. Um, and I think most of it was just, you know, being outdoors. I was a Boy Scout, um, and so just kind of going out and camping and, and learning how to push the edges in different environments. There's one time we had like a tornado tear through our camp, rip up a bunch of our stuff, you know, and uh, I think those kind of experience, not that specific one, but those kind of experiences really helped me kind of figure out um, that I'm a risk taker uh, and that I, I'm, uh, I really crave kind of new experiences, I crave challenges, it, it just really engages me intellectually. Uh, so I think those kind of experiences were my favorite. Okay, makes sense. So now let's go back to Copo Copo. Yeah. How exactly did you and your co-founders meet and the idea start? Like walk me through, oh, I'm trying to look for a job in DC. How exactly? I don't find a job. Ugh. And then next thing I'm moving to Kenya to go start the company. Like, Yeah, so this is not a typical path. Like um, I met my first co-founders on Twitter and we, we really hadn't met in person before we decided to found a company together. And that was originally um, me and, and a guy named Tom Bostelman. Um, and then between, he's a very senior engineer. And at the time I was in my early 20s, so I'm very green. You know, we were figuring out like, he didn't want to be CEO. I was like, I'm way too young to, to do that. I don't even know what I'm doing. I can barely count. Uh, and so um, we decided to bring in one of his former colleagues who they founded a, a nonprofit together focused on building savings in vulnerable communities in the right. US um, and so he said we've got to get this guy Dylan he's got the executive kind of chops so uh, we brought him on as CEO and, and as co-founder really before I met him um, and so I wouldn't advise that path to other <laughs> entrepreneurs it's 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 very atypical mm. but it worked out really well and um, Dylan was the best man in my wedding you know we're, we're still oh. very close uh, and we, we built a, a great company together that's still around um, but like how we met it, it's difficult for me to reconnect like a straight line because yeah. I think it was, I think what I've done generally in my career is um, try and position myself at kind of different nexus points in mm. networks right. so that I can capture opportunities mm. and just be, be placed to see them. Mm. Um, and I think just as I was, you know, I didn't have a job, I was looking for work. So I'm focused on the things I'm passionate about on Twitter. That's when I really got into Twitter and I was finding who else is talking about microfinance in Africa, right. who else is talking about mobile money. Um, and you know, you find your people. It's everyone, they're different tribes. Yeah. Uh, so just found Tom, got lucky, and, and that's So that's Tom how it was happened. CTO, Dylan was CEO, and you were well? God, I was everything. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I was I, I was really kind of a Swiss Army knife, and so I did product for a time. Uh, I did business development for a time. I really plugged in. I think this this is where that liberal arts education mm -hmm. came in. Is is it was more like, you know, it's an early stage startup. We're all shoulder to shoulder on this thing. So what needs to be done? And is there the, is there someone doing it already? And if not, I mostly would play the role of backfilling. Um, but also, I would I would. Um, I'd be kind of the face in a lot of ways and, and going out and doing like, you know, helping Dylan with pitches or, or doing conferences and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it makes sense. So, I mean, what was your favorite part of running Copo Copo and what lessons did you learn in that time? And yeah. Did you do it for five years before you left or was it just like a little part of the five years that you stayed in Kenya? It was it was the, the pretty the much the whole the whole reason. Uh, so pretty much five years in Copo Copo, mostly in Nairobi, a little bit in Seattle for a few months. Um, yeah, so first you said what's the biggest lesson or what yeah. was the biggest? Like what was your favorite thing about Copo Copo and yeah. what was your biggest lesson? I yeah, thought? favorite thing is team. Um, and so this was, you know, I hadn't worked in small teams before in kind of like a high performance team setting. Um, I'd come from that liberal arts kind of, you know, theoretical kind of uh, 
uh, environment. And so it was just great for me to see that like a small number of people can really do anything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we had our, our first engineer at Copo Copo who built our first screen scrapers to, to make us, you know, on M-Pesa so that we could actually do Lipa on M-Pesa. This was like the pay with M-Pesa, mm -hmm. so the, the merchant strategy. No APIs existed or anything. We had to just hack this thing together. And Kibet, our first hire, uh, we didn't have money at the time in the very beginning. Like we, we landed in Nairobi. I was sleeping on a floor for a time. We, I think, I think I made about two hundred dollars a month at uh, at that point. So we were, you know, we were bootstrapping. Um, and Kibet, poor Kibet, when he joined us, uh, all we had to offer him was a netbook. So, and by a netbook, I mean like one of those super tiny laptops. And this guy like built all our crawlers and was coding on a netbook. And wow. so, um, I, that memory, I, I know it was horrible for him and he's got a great laptop, like a great system now. <laughs> but I just remember like, even with those constraints, we were able to make it happen. And then we continually focused on um, teammates. That was always the emphasis is like the quality of the person, um, their their attitude, not so much the CV mm. uh, as, as much as like what's your attitude, what are your passions, mm. and can we communicate? Um, and so we really tried to screen for that and um, you know I, I don't like to think of companies as families because family's family <laughs> um, and never the twain shall meet yeah. uh, but there was such a strong bond and really some of my closest friends to this day are, are from that experience so that I'm really grateful for that. Um, and in terms of lessons, I'd say the biggest lesson coming out of Copo is reflected in Hover and, and Stacks, which is um, that, first let me explain the Copo Copo model. So you could think of Copo Copo like Square. Okay. So what we did was we went to Safaricom, which is, is the issuer of M-Pesa. Mm -hmm. And at the time they had like millions and millions of Kenyan adults who had M-Pesa on their phone, mm -hmm. but they didn't they didn't really have merchants formally accepting it. So it's right. so like you had millions of people with the card in their pocket, but no merchants with the machine. Um, and so we went to Safaricom about 2011 is when we started negotiating. We said, look, do one contract with us and we'll go do everything else. We'll acquire the merchants, we'll onboard them, we'll do reconciliation, settlement support, uh, we'll do value added services. You make a dollar for every dollar we make and we're spending all the dollars. Mm. was basically the, the value practice of Aricom. So great deal for them. It took them only about a year to violate our contract. It took Whoa. us. Well, no, actually, it took us a year to get the contract. It took them two weeks to violate it. Two weeks. Two weeks, uh, and um, and ultimately, within about a year of us launching, they were trying to. Uh, they tried to kind of crowd us out of the market because what we'd done was effectively built very quickly built a monopoly within a monopoly. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, you know, 2011, 2012, we have about 80 percent of Safaricom's merchant base on the Copa Copa network. Mm. Um, and so Safaricom being a large incumbent, um, you know, there's this thing called the Kronos effect. I think it's from like Greek mythology, but it's the idea of like this god Kronos was threatened by his children. He heard some yeah. prophecy that his children would, would unseat him and so he would eat his children. Uh, and um, my experience at Copa Copa was that this is how Safaricom behaves. And then kind of leaving that the years after when I was on the investor side of the table for a few years, that's when I really recognized that that wasn't unique to us. This is really yeah. kind of incumbent behavior across the continent. Um, and that, that informed my thinking about, okay, if you're going to do a startup, if you want to build on, like you, you have to, you can't just start from zero if you're mm -hmm. doing financial services. You need to find a way to build on the telco rails, build on the bank rails. And I came out of the Copa Copa experience thinking, you know, frankly, a lot of these large incumbents are actually bad faith actors. Right. Um, and so, you know, they'll, they'll shake your hand, and, but they've got a dagger behind their back. <laughs> so, um, so coming out of that, the lesson then was, was this question, which is how can we do this without them? How can we, how can we build on them without them? Right. Uh, and that really kind of, that's the segue to, to hover and us looking at like, okay, how can we automate the channel uh, and, and change the customer experience of the channel if we're not able to actually partner with these right. large companies. So before you started Hover too, I mean, solve that problem, how did Copa Copa deal with Safaricom just, you know, cannibalizing everything? Yeah, um, the only way you stay alive when you're facing a large incumbent like that is you have to be nimble, you move faster. Uh, and so it was a constant, almost like a, like a waltz mm -hmm. or something. You know, they, they do something, you do something. And so uh, you have to really figure out like, how can I differentiate because you can't can't just go head to head with yeah. a large. That's that's you know path of fools. <laughs> so um, you know I kind of took on this lesson of like almost like insurgent type uh, kind of approaches to it. 
Um, I think I'm missing your question. So my question was, how did you guys do with Safaricom? Just like, I mean, it took you a year yeah. to get the contract, two weeks to get them to validate it. And then what happened afterwards? Because Kubokoko was still existing, right? Yeah. Did the business model change? Did you guys pivot or? Yeah. So um, first there was the recognition when they breached the contract that you can't really do anything practically. Mm -hmm. You know, um, when in a, in a system like this, they have so much sway on the regulator and on, on uh, many institutions. And so, um, uh, so what we decided to do was like, look, there's no legal recourse here. You can't go and say you violated contract and it's a contract. This is the basis yeah. of all capital, <laughs> like capitalism. Uh, and so what we decided instead was we had to focus on where we're different and where we can build out our value that they can't see and they can't touch. Right. And so what we had started was just a basic payment solution. You want to buy your coffee at, say, Java House in Nairobi. Today, that's a Copo Copo merchant. Yeah. So you buy your coffee, you pay a thousand shillings. That actually goes to Copo Copo, and then we settle out to to Java House like nine hundred ninety something shillings less mm -hmm. our our transaction fee. That that's such a small in mobile money acceptance. Like you're making like like twenty five basis points or like zero point two five percent. So it's really small margins, um, and so that alone compelled us to find a larger opportunity built on that. But the bigger driver was that we knew Safaricom could kill that line, mm -hmm. uh, and so what we decided in twenty thirteen was to launch and this was actually within about two weeks of Square launching their Square Capital service. Mm -hmm. We didn't know they were about to do that. We launched a, basically the same service with right. the same design uh, called Grow by Copo Copo. Uh, and so what that was was a merchant cash advance service where if you're a Copo Copo merchant, you've been with us for three plus months, um, we will give you an unsecured cash advance instantly. You tap a button, check the box, money's in your account. Um, and the way that you repay that is by dedicating a percentage of your daily impasse payments, like your receivables. Mm -hmm. So you could take out like a $20,000 cash advance and say, I'll repay you with 30% of my daily impasse sales. Mm -hmm. And since we're the impasse processor, you we can-, can easily automate collecting it. Yeah, and, and so what that did was effectively create a black box that the incumbent couldn't see into. Mm -hmm. They couldn't see our algorithms. They didn't know who we were uh, lending to. Um, and really that cash advance service became the killer feature. Finance is the killer feature. Um, and so- Still today? Absolutely, that's the main source of the business. Um, and so even then when they would send their own agents to try and get our merchants to move to them, the, the agents then would say, or the merchants would say like, you're not going to give me a cash advance. Yeah. Like, so why why would I do that? Like, um, and that that really that kept us alive primarily by by shifting to that and really seeing then that the transaction to a great extent we had to view as a loss leader and we had to understand that that transaction revenue could disappear overnight because over the first two or three years of Copo Copo, uh, Safaricom unilaterally changed our rates against contract, mm -hmm. like two times. And like, I was once on a, a stage in a conference, uh, and I, I don't know why I was looking at Twitter while I'm <laughs> on the stage, but that's when I saw that like the, CE the CEO had announced new merchant discount rates, and they hadn't told us. And based on what it had, uh, they were saying, I was like, it looks like they just cut us out entirely. Wow. You know, so that's how you would, like, you were the only, you know, even today, like we, we account for probably eight to ten percent of the, their merchant network, and you just never know what's coming down the stream, um, and so you have to kind of be vigilant and keep moving um, because those transaction fees could go away any day. And they did twice. I mean, we started it. We originally charged one point five percent, and Safaricom got one percent. We got 0.5, so they got the lion's share. But then they slashed it down. Okay, now it's one percent overnight. Go figure that out. And then a few, like a year later, it's like now it's zero point five percent. And so they're just squeezing your margins down. Um, and yeah, we, we just had to find another way to live. But I think that's also the arc of the industry where you generally see this race to zero on transactions. Yeah. Um, and I, I generally view that transaction fees will approach zero kind of everywhere. Um, and so we had to change our mindset to like transaction as loss leader. What data is available in payments? How can we build on payments? Similar to like you would look at a square and kind of how do we build a suite of business services yeah. around that? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it sounds like you guys did amazing work. And Copacopo is existing today. So that's like really successful business yeah. why did you leave or how did you know that it was the right time to leave and then start over what was that transition like yeah so I look at this part of my life as like a really expensive MBA <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was there about five years we were um, really 
really moving as quickly as we could. I think at our peak, we were acquiring something like 2,000 merchants a month. Now, when you're doing that, the, the quality is, is not always so great. Mm -hmm. um, but you know that's compared to banks, like large banks in East Africa, even today might only have 300 merchants. Um, and so we were acquiring about 2,000 a month, and this is where we were kind of building our quick mini monopoly within Safaricom Sandbox. Um, and uh, what had happened was we were really investing in growth. We, we had started investing also. We were trying to diver diversify outside of Kenya because of the Safaricom risk. Mm -hmm. You had too much partner concentration risk. So we were trying to find ways like, how do we go to Rwanda? How do we go to t uh, Tanzania? We set up uh, pilots there. Um, and so we started doing that. Uh, and uh, we also even started licensing our, our like white labeling our right. core technology. We sold that to a bank in Zimbabwe, uh, to a bank in, in uh, Uganda. Um, and uh, so we were trying to really diversify the business outside of Kenya at the time. And we were investing heavily in growth. Yeah. Uh, and what had happened was we were out trying to raise our Series A. We were trying to raise about five million, and this is in 2015. You know, so the capital markets were dramatically different than they are yeah. today, uh, and that's wonderful for the ecosystem. Uh, but it was not so that that way yeah. then, uh, and so we're trying to raise about five million dollars, and we the first close on that round is three million. So once you hit three million, you know, wires start coming. Um, we had 2.7 of that committed, so we're 300,000 short of the first close, and then that investor, you know, post term sheet, post diligence, pretty randomly kind of pulled the term sheet. Uh, and Any reason why? I cannot figure it out. Uh, I'm not going to throw them under the bus. Uh, it, it, I found it unprofessional. I'll just leave it at that. Um, and uh, But it put us in a bind because we were really banking on on that lead mm -hmm. to hit the first close. And all indications were, you know, all lights were flashing green. Mm -hmm. um, so then this investor pulls. We have two weeks of cash in the bank. And wow. we, have, we have, at that point, probably 50 or 60 teammates, probably spending $200,000 a month. Um, and uh, it was dramatic. It was like, you have two weeks of existence left. Mm. What do you do? Uh, and so we tried to get another investor up to that point where they would put in the lead. It was going to take them more than two weeks. Uh, and so we were kind of uh, in the squeeze uh, and had to go back to, the, to our existing investors and say, like, look, we're in a position here like we believe you see the growth you see the possibility but we're almost out of cash we're about to die so can you can you you know invest again um and they did but they did it where they recapitalized yeah. the company and so we were valued at something like 30 percent the previous post money valuation oh, wow. and so when with like venture capital investors they've got all of these anti-dilution protections and the moment you have something like that happen like a like a significant down round or a recap those provisions kick in and you see massive dilution across yeah. the common shareholders and common shareholders are teammates the founders we're all common shareholders yeah. Um, so massively diluted down um, and you know about that point in 2015 we decided like yeah let's take the money it's better to lay off 15 people than 50 mm -hmm. uh, and we believed in the opportunity so we took the money because it was all that was available uh, and this was also at a point in my life where we had started to just personally encounter some uh, some kind of um, we just had some encounters with violence that were deeply affecting uh, deeply affected me uh, and so you know I was kind of getting burnt out uh, my nervous system was dysregulated all of a sudden the compensation just really doesn't look interesting you know you own all of a sudden three percent of the company you founded mm -hmm. and it's been massively recapped down to something nominal yeah. you know and so you're just like i can do math like i love <laughs> this i love the opportunity yeah, but i can but do math make sense yeah so uh, dylan and i both decided to resign at that point i stepped in as the interim ceo and founder replacement mm -hmm. uh and then that company itself What's that? What about Tom? Tom actually left early on. Okay. He just wasn't able to move to Kenya. So okay. Dylan and I both moved, and, and we decided it's like an amicable parting then because okay. uh, we needed to be here. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think, you know, in retrospect, it was a very, very painful and expensive mm. mistake. Um, and today I'm grateful looking back that, you know, the team that's carried it since then has like revitalized it. It's yeah. like a phoenix. Um, and so there was also a lesson in there that we did the painful thing. You know, there's the saying, like, if you have to cut, cut deep, cut once. Um, we did the painful thing. And uh, it does look like there's going to be a, a really good outcome 
um, for those teammates. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited about that because our, our vision was always, you know, like we want to see the Copo Copo Mafia. We were, mm -hmm. we were one of the first generation fintechs um, and we wanted to see, just like you had kind of the early PayPal employees yeah. seeding the entire ecosystem, there, w there wasn't an angel ecosystem here. And so that, that was most crushing for us and that was to see that we, I couldn't see a path to having the Copa Copa Mafia, to having our early employees be millionaires, um, and that was really that was really disappointing, you know. And now now there is a there is a path again, um, and so it's you know even though it was a painful decision, it, it was the right one given the circumstances. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything that you think you've learned from the experience that you can avoid doing that again? Oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. Spend for the company you have, not the company you want. Um, plan okay. for contingencies. Give more context to that first one. Yeah, just just be you know clear-eyed about where you actually are as a, as a company, where you are in terms of traction and what milestones you need to hit and how long it will take to hit those milestones with some margin of safety and okay. spend accordingly. Um, right. And avoid the squeeze as best you can, you know, and, and also to avoid the squeeze, always have a plan B, C, D, E. You know, like one of our values in Hover is okay. plan for contingencies. Yeah. And it really comes from that. Like you shouldn't you should never be forced to say yes. Mm. You want the option to say no. Mm. Uh, and so you need to have multiple options. Um, so just being really conscious of like, clear out about your traction and also not having hope as a strategy. Uh, like, <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, hope is not a strategy. Um, so I think we could have, we could have probably in retrospect been more clear eyed about the fact that the round was taking longer. We probably should have done the layoffs months before mm. in anticipation, even though it did hurt the company, yeah. uh, it was probably what we should have done. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd say that generally. Okay, that's a good advice. Um, so you left Copa Copa, moved back to the US, mm -hmm. and then when did Hover start and how did it happen? I mean, obviously your co-founders now are not the same co-founders, so yep. there's also a story of how did you meet your co-founders as well. Yeah, so there was a second, there were a couple years where, um, so I was a founder at Copa Copa and then I moved to the US as, as one of the founding members of the DFS lab. Mm. And really my role was entrepreneur in residence. Um, and so DFS Lab is this early stage FinTech accelerator that's targeting Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia. Um, and uh, the spirit of me going there as an entrepreneur in residence was like, look, spend some time here. Let's, let's help other founders. Let's invest where we can uh, and build the ecosystem. But ultimately my role is to leave and, mm -hmm. and build something again um, and kind of launch from that network. Um, so I spent about two years there. And the big insight for me from that was to see that you know this this five years in Copa Copo was I had all these experiences and then to talk to we looked at I think 700 companies we invested in nine I had you know weekly calls with probably six CEOs um, and for me that was a great experience or opportunity to really see like how much we share how, how many struggles we share as, as kind of entrepreneurs um, but also that many of the challenges we faced at Copa Copa were not unique to Copa Copa and they were actually representative of kind of the continental challenges. Um, and so um, coming out of, you know, two years there, I'm, I'm talking to, um, you know, David, who's a longtime friend. He's now our, our Hover yeah. CTO and co-founder. We were friends in Nairobi. Um, Jess, who's my spouse, and, and also we were friends in Nairobi, and she's a, a co-founder at, at Hover. Um, so as I'm, as I'm working at DFS Lab, David, Jess, and I are all kind of toying with this idea of like, we want to do something together. We really like working together. We like each other. You know, why not? <laughs> um, and I was really fixated on, on one of those big lessons, again, about like, man, you cannot count on these incumbents, mm. like do not hold your breath. Um, so we started touring with this idea about like, look, all of these services are on this USSD thing. And if you look at the progression of, of kind of like FinTech, early, early FinTech in the West, you know, that started with screen scraping internet banking portals, mm -hmm. and even there's still a lot of screen scraping internet banking portals behind the uh, the, the invest nets and the plaids of yeah. the world. And so we kind of saw that pattern because even before plaid, way many years before, there was a company called Yodli that basically yeah. did the same thing. And so we saw that pattern, and we thought. You know, we're not scraping internet banking portals here because people aren't using internet banking. Mm. Um, but is there a way we can scrape the the USSD itself? So kind of the same pattern, but a different 
technology. Um, and we did find a way, David found a way after he left his last startup where he was just tinkering at home in Nairobi. Uh, and I think in about a month he was able to, to um, get a proof of construct and show like, yes, actually we can do this. And the first proof of concept actually was a, an app that looked a lot like Cash App today. <laughs> it was just very simple, like you want to send money and I'm sending it from M-Pesa and then you know, do it in an app instead of USSD. Um, and so, um, you know, was, at the time it was like, we saw that there, was, there were shared problems, we wanted to work together. Uh, we found a viable technology that would allow us to go directly to people and to improve their experience without having to talk to a single incumbent. Mm -hmm. um, and that was when we decided, okay, let's do this thing. And I think that was 2017 when we when we did it. Yeah, but when you get started, it, it didn't start with stacks, right? Stacks right. came in later. I started with just like being on a B2B and doing SDK. Um, why? Yeah. Why was that the angle against like, let's go consumer led in the first place? Yeah, actually, yes and no, because um, that that first thing we built actually looks a lot like stacks today that first proof of con uh, concept um, which is kind of funny uh, that we started there and we've come back to it um, but originally we were thinking like okay we can go do this ourselves with a consumer play um, but you know we we had this view this you know just wondering like if all the money is moving over this rail and all of a sudden you've made this rail accessible to third parties, that's a gold rush, right? And so what do you do in a gold rush? Do you, uh, do you go up with your pickaxe or do you sell the pickaxe? Um, and so we said, we're going to sell the pickaxes because uh, that's the better, the better bet in a gold <laughs> rush. Um, and that turned out to be wrong and we can kind of come back to that. But that was the original thinking was really just based on that. Like we really believed that this would be disruptive technology and that everyone would see kind of the vision we had uh, so we decided even though we had this cool cash app looking thing we're like let's let's expose this to developers um, and so then we did that for about two years um, ultimately saw like you know long term I think that vision is right yeah. short term it wasn't a viable business right um, and what we saw was you know uh, hundreds of developers in over 60 countries using our technology to automate over a thousand unique money paths but a handful paid us yeah. so what we did was validate the technology but not the business model mm. and so in 2020 you know we've raised venture capital um, we're two years in at this point and if you want to stay on the VC treadmill you have to run at a certain speed mm. constantly mm. Um, and we weren't running at that speed so we we're about to get thrown off the treadmill so in 2020 we decided look how can we how can we bring this back into our control so that we're not waiting on b2b cycles right. we're not waiting on an app that's using us to find product market fit before they can get traction and therefore we can yeah. get traction with yeah. them uh, and so we decided let's go back to our roots uh, let's go back to that initial vision and say like we will build the app we've been waiting for people to build uh, and so that was in 2020 and then we launched stacks in 2021 so it, it, it is a, a pivot in a sense but it's also a return home yeah. and kind of a, a change in the route to market because core technology is the same and it's really a matter of we're building what we were waiting for someone to build. And what was that exactly? Yeah, so I mean that's really the vision for Stacks today is like an offline payment super app. So all of your, you know, if you're in, in Nigeria, you might have three to five bank accounts and you can access all of those on USSD. Or you could have the bank apps and take up like 40 megabytes on, or 40 gigabytes yeah. on your phone. You know, like it's horrible bank apps. But um, all of those channels were accessible on USSD. And so the idea was like, we're going to give you one place where you can manage all of your digital money, a single harmonized interface. Uh, you can link all of your accounts and it'll work for you offline because USSD works offline. And um, that's one of the big differentiators for us is that we're really focused on the market where it is today mm. um, and also where it's going. You know, there are about 300 million Africans today who own a smartphone but have a strong preference to transact offline, mm. meaning they've got mobile data disabled and they're, they're moving their money through USSD instead of an app. Mm. Um, and so, and that, that's actually a, a large and growing market. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's not just like a moment in time. Um, and so our vision is to, uh, to meet people where they are, which is generally offline, um, and give them that universal kind of payment experience. Mm -hmm. And also begin serving that bridging function because we have this way to get to you offline. We can expose services to you offline. Um, and so really helping bridge them onto, 
onto the internet in a way and extending the edges of the internet through USSD automation. Yeah. Uh, but big vision, offline payment super app. Okay, cool. I mean, it sounds nice and I know, right? Yeah, right. Well, for, <laughs> for people outside, right, there's, sometimes there's this argument of, oh, I mean, yes, people are moving away from USSD, right? They're because wrong. there's internet banking and every other fintech <laughs> is building for like internet banking and APIs yeah. and, you know, P2P that are very internet enabled, yeah. but we're doing something different. And yeah. like, what's the, the real thinking that yeah. drives that, oh, the market is going here, it's going yeah. to the internet, it's going to P2P, it's going with apps, yeah. right, that require the internet, uh, but here we're focusing on, on something different. Yeah, so I like the phrase, everyone is entitled to their own opinions, but not their own facts. And the people <laughs> who are saying that are categorically wrong. Uh, and that's based on observable fact and, and structured data. And so we can see from uh, between Caribou Data, which is this like Nielsen type service, they, they have nationally representative panels in five African markets, uh, where basically anything you were doing on your smartphone, you were getting paid for that to be seen so that they could get a profile of how people use smartphones. Um, and they saw uh, between that data and data from the GSMA, which is kind of the telco association, it, they came out with um, basically today, 94 to 97% of all digital consumer payments in Africa are using USSD. Yeah. So that's, that's where we start. So anyone that's saying that USSD isn't significant is objectively wrong. They just haven't done their research. Um, and so then it's a question of like, what's the vector? Mm -hmm. So uh, is USSD growing? Uh, is it growing? Is it diminishing? And how is that relative to internet? Net banking services, and that's your fintechs, your chippers, your barters, that kind of stuff. Um, and so, if you look at the growth of those services just next to one another, actually, it's profound. Uh, so, over the same period that you've had the chipper caches of the world existing, you've had hundreds of millions of people come into the financial fold through USSD. Mm. I mean, hundreds of millions. Um, COVID really accelerated. Uh, the use of digital payments, and again, 94 to 97% are USSD. And so it turns out that the vector for growth for USSD, this technology from 1997, you know, is um, at breakneck. It's growing at a breakneck speed. Okay. Even the fintechs, even though that they sell that vision, you know, they'll go tell the investors, oh, this is going away. Look at them launch USSD codes, mm. you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, and I've, I've been in some of those meetings where, uh, you know, discussing decisions and saying like, oh, we had taken down USSD, but we did not that business did not come back to us. Yeah. We lost business when we did that. And so that's the reality of the market is to, as it is today, but it's also where it's going, especially when you consider, kind of look at our macro environment. You know, this is a market worsening situation for everyone. We're through a pandemic. Um, we've got kind of global cataclysm affecting our financial markets. People's wealth is not increasing. Um, and if the preference today is to be offline because you're very data conscious because you're trying to make every penny last, that's not changing. Mm -hmm. And it's not changing the next five years. Um, and so I think they've just misidentified um, kind of the, the window. Uh, and and what you know, there's a little bit of projection of like the world as I want it to be versus the world as it is. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And Stacks is basically just giving USSD simpler, better user interface, right? Yeah. Yeah. So people can still transact on USSD, but then, I mean, it's more fun. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, makes sense. Um, and Hova is very big on financial inclusion. Uh, and when you talk about things like, you know, why you started uh, Copa mm -hmm. in the first place, and you talk about like mobile money, and talk about, you know, people still transact on USSD, the financial inclusion part also comes about. But I yeah. still want you to like speak a bit more yeah. about how it's not just about, you know, building an offline super hub, but this is how it also translates to you know getting people to become more financially inclusive yeah and you know with over the years I've, I've been in kind of African fintech for 12 years and and I used to identify it more as financial inclusion and to me now I just call it fintech <laughs> uh, and I, I think they've kind of blurred because this is the market opportunity yeah. they're gonna be two billion Africans by 2050 don't you want to start building out your like find a wedge start serving that base and growing with it instead of waiting for some yeah. massive disruption and all of a sudden you've got free data and everyone's on smartphones all the time and so um yeah it's, it's all just fintech to me it's like this is the market opportunity um again that 300 million africans today with smartphone choosing to transact offline um, that's kind of where we start um, and we don't just think about inclusion we really just think about like it's it's about how can you reach the most possible people and that then forces you to be inclusive and to think about accessibility um, because that's one of the main limits if you're like a ussd user today if you have a visual impairment can't mm. use ussd it's hostile to you mm. uh, if you have a motor impairment probably can't use it easily. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, uh, you know, if you're illiterate, if you're enumerate, at this point I've listed about a billion people yeah. in the world. So, um, if you're not focusing on that, then you're excluding those people and you've, you've made your total addressable market smaller. Um, and so to me now, it's, it's, I'm socially driven. You know, we have a mission yeah. at this company, which is to build an inclusive internet. But to me now, it one-to-one -one matches with, there are ways to do this where you can, you can have a huge mm -hmm. market outcome. And it's just about serving the, the market yeah. as it is. And you know, more accessible. Like Safaricom is an enormously valuable company. And one of their first innovations was just like the Bomba 20. You know, so like now you can buy the smallest denomination is 20 shillings of airtime. So it's just like, can I can I break this down into sachets and make it accessible? And like you wouldn't look at Safaricom and say that that's a mission-driven company. Yeah. That's a telco. You know, but they figured out how to serve the market. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's my new framing on that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you did ho hover the main B2B model for two years, mm -hmm. and in 2020 to 2022, it's been stacks. That's right. Uh, what's the what has been like the parallel? And uh, you know that oh, yes, we actually did the right thing in pivoting because how stacks grow, what attraction that makes you validate that yeah, we're on the right path versus the way we started with just like automating SDK for developers. Yeah, I mean now we get to talk to our users directly, right? <laughs> and so uh, when when we were an API platform and you have an app that builds on us, we really didn't have visibility to actually the end user and, and we couldn't really get good feedback on are you getting the value you expected? Like are you, we, we didn't even have great visibility into like where is it breaking and stuff. Um, and so by us going directly to, by building that relationship directly with users now we've got a really tight feedback loop. Mm -hmm. um, and so that based on the feedback we're getting and, and the use we're able to see that our value prop resonates. Like if you tell people this is one app where you can link all of your accounts and you can transact offline and you can even delete some of your bank apps and free up some of that space on your phone, people will download that app in spades. Like mm -hmm. we, we know top of the funnel, we, we've had almost 200,000 all-time downloads, right? So we know that people want to buy what we're selling. Mm -hmm. um, so today the issue for us is to make sure that we're, we're living up to our end of the promise mm -hmm. because people want to buy what we're selling. Um, and so the biggest issue today is more internal around like we're working through kind of bugs and device specific issues and the like, but they do want it. Uh, and so there's resonance there. And I think that's the greatest uh, validation. Mm -hmm. And also seeing, you know, for example, when you turn off your ads and you see more, more and more people keep coming back, um, and you see those power users who somehow are doing a thousand transactions in three months. You know, you see that the average tax user has like three accounts linked. You know, it's resonating. We've got you know good reviews, uh, growing community online where people are really engaged, um, and you know not just with the product but also with the company and the mission and yeah. the team. Um, and so uh, you can kind of see it all around that people are rooting for us. And people want what we're selling, and so we just have to deliver it now. And that's that's different than when we. Were we were at Hover, we were still trying to figure out, do you want what we're selling? You know? <laughs> yeah, makes sense. I mean, when you talk about multiple bank accounts, there's some other people who are also skeptical just because of like security and safety, like especially in Nigeria. Like, do I want to have all of them? What if like police catch me? Uh, so how is um, Stacks building and incorporating just safety and security for the users? Yeah, totally. Um, to some people, it's very frightening to have all your money in one place. That's a single point of failure, mm -hmm. right? Um, so security is paramount. Trust is paramount. This is a money utility. Mm -hmm. And so at the base, it's it's an incumbent on us to never violate user trust mm -hmm. and to focus on, like, we should always reinforce trust with our users so that they know their money's safe with us. That's the spirit. How do we do it? So. Uh, Technically, you know, it, you have some things like we can't do anything with your money, uh, mm -hmm. actually, uh, because USSD is by its nature two-factor. Uh, it's always mm -hmm. tied to your SIM, and so if you don't have that SIM in that phone, you can't you can't do anything with it. So yeah. you can't do like remote. I can't use your details to take yeah, your money. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. Um, but then that's USSD itself. What we've done at the app level then is, you know, now you can add sign in with a, a fingerprint um, to further or with your phone lock to, mm -hmm. to further block that account. Um, and then, you know, of course, your, your standard fintech stuff. We're encrypting all our traffic. Um, you know, we're obfuscating, like you enter your, your service pins in stacks mm. um, and we're just using kind of standard fintech stuff at this point. So like in Android, there's the service called Keystore. And if you remember like back when Apple wanted to launch Apple Pay. Mm -hmm. Apple controls their whole manufacturing process. So what they did to secure those card details on the device was they had a, a hardware secure element. There was an actually a bit of hardware in that device for that security. 
Android wanted to compete, but Android doesn't control their manufacturing process. They're distributed through uh, OEMs. And so Android's response was to build what they called a, a software secure element. Mm. And this is what enabled you to then have Android Pay, and you had thousands of global banks sign on, and MasterCard and Visa. Um, and so that became Android Key Store, right. where you can manage those credentials securely. And that's what we use for pen management. And so what happens there is when you enter your pen in Stacks, um, all we're doing is passing it directly through to the USSD and then destroying it. Um, it never leaves your device. We never see it. We never want to see it. Um, and it's immediately destroyed after entry. Um, so that's how we secure the pen. Um, and then beyond that, you know, when you see a lot of fraud happening, a lot of it's social engineering. So this is more forward looking. Yeah. But um, you see us with uh, a lot of our content online today is around like financial literacy and stuff. And so we have a role to play there too and to help people understand like this is how you can better protect your money. So yeah. there's an education component. Um, but those are the basic kind of security features. Um, and then also it has to be in the DNA of the company, right? You, you remember like Uber employees were looking up their X's, rides, you know, so it has to be in the DNA of the company too. Um, and so one of our values is actually data rights equal human rights. Mm -hmm. um, and we take the view that um, when you look at kind of where we're going today, everyone's trying to grab your data and they're trying to get it like a really specific profile of who you are as an individual to make you not an individual, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> uh, to predict what you're going to do and to really influence yeah. to shape what you're going to do uh, and this is where we get into like really nano like micro targeting and stuff uh, and I think that's destructive on the whole for everyone and, and really quite dangerous and so we take the view of the opposite we never seek to micro target we never seek to advertise we are not a data business mm -hmm. so what we want to get to is a point where I would prefer to know as little about our users as possible because um, if you look at the internet today, it's increasingly hostile. Mm -hmm. You know, look at the cyber attack warnings just in the last week. And so I take the view that when the hack occurs, you should not be able to hurt our users. Um, and so that we want to kind of architect toward that. Okay, makes sense. Um, over 200K installs, almost 250 by the way, Beth. Um, do you write? <laughs> um, and one of the things that we started with was that Stacks is an offline super app, right? Mm -hmm. uh, right now, it, it necessarily, it's not necessarily is, right? Mm -hmm. It's still just send money, payable by airtime. Yeah. Um, for these users who are trusting us, who are downloading, who are using, who are doing lots of transactions every other month, what can they look forward to? When you say offline super app, um, and you want to contextualize it a little bit so that you can know exactly, oh, this is what we're building, and this is what we're staying yeah. on this app for, what would that look like? What's the vision? Yeah. Yeah, so the idea is like, first you start as a universal money utility. Mm -hmm. um, and so whether you're in Cape Town or Cairo, you've now got a standard way, a single app, where you can link your accounts, check your balances, send money, pay a bill, buy data. Mm -hmm. So start with the universal kind of feature set. Mm -hmm. What we become is more of like an open commerce ecosystem. And so this is where we look to say WeChat in China or Paytm, many apps in India. And the idea there is that you have you have really becoming a customer acquisition platform where you have people coming to you to move money. Um, we're uniquely able to serve them offline. And so what we want to do is start embedding and exposing third-party services through mini apps to our users so that they can access more and more of the internet while offline. So I talked about earlier before, like extending the edges of the internet. Mm -hmm. And so when we say an offline payment super app, what that, what that really is going to mean beyond just making payments mm -hmm. is we're going to be the place where you can um, make financial decisions really as a financial partner. We'll, we'll play marketplace function mm -hmm. where we our goal will be to surface what services are available to you, to make them available to you offline, and to give you a place to manage them in mm -hmm. stacks. And so that could be like, what loans are available to me? Oh, I have eight different services, and here are all of the rates compared mm -hmm. side by side. Just that is new. Yeah. Because today, like you've, if you're in Kenya, you've got hundreds of these kind of uh, uh, nano credit yeah. options and one of the challenges for consumers is that the fees are not transparent yeah. um, so you're not empowering that person with the information they need to make a good decision so playing a marketplace function our goal would be to surface all of that for you so that you can make the best decision say I want this loan uh, but then you apply for that loan in stacks um, you see that balance credited to an account you've linked to stacks you repay it in stacks you know and that's that's just one thing also say savings, uh, buy crypto, Stop. sell crypto. crypto, and what it becomes is, is 
you know, WeChat identifies themselves as really like a customer acquisition platform. Mm. So there are maybe 60 different points where they can monetize. And the whole point is just how do I, through a single app that's optimized for low bandwidth, surface all of these um, partners to you and originate new business to them. Uh, but that's kind of at the business model level. The whole point is like you're, you're a financial marketplace in your in your pocket. And you get everything in, in one place, accessible yeah. offline. Where you have the power. Yeah. You have the information to make the right choices. Yeah, makes sense. Um, on like Kobo Kobo, right, Stax is not just in Kenya, right? Stax mm -hmm. is in different countries. Yep. Just a bit about it. Yeah, so I mean, we're uh, today we, we have we support about 100 plus bank and mobile money services um, in about 10 markets. We're primarily focused on Nigeria, Kenya, uh, and kind of secondarily like Uganda, Tanzania, Ghana, Ethiopia. Um, for us, one of the reasons we can, we can go broad, first it's the mission. We're going for a universal money utility, like a universal money app for Africa. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we have really big ambitions of WhatsApp scale ambitions uh, to do to money, what WhatsApp did to messaging. Yeah. Um, so one of the reasons we can focus or, or we can uh, have such broad service so quickly is, is the nature of our technology. Mm. Um, because what we're doing is we're not actually holding your money. We're not processing a payment. We don't require licenses to do what we're doing because of that. Um, and so really all we need to do to go live in a market is by our own rules, support at least six services. Mm. Because one of the big value props for Stacks is you can link multiple accounts. Account? So we don't want to start marketing until there are at least six that we support. So how do we support new services? Um, what we've done is for us to support a new service, what that means is that we've seen the whole USSD flow. Okay. We know how to automate it. Um, so the challenge early on was how do we get access to all of these thousands of USSD services across Africa because they require a SIM card. You got to walk into that SACO give them your ID, and then you'll get access to their mobile banking. So how on earth can we process that long tail? Yeah. Um, and what we found was um, a way to crowdsource that through our users. And so a Stacks user today, they can go to settings and the app, and there's this feature called Money Mappers, where we have open bounties by country, saying like if you're in South Africa, maybe we don't support Capitec Bank yet, and we want to, so we'll pay you $5 to check your balance on Capitec Bank from, from this flow we have in Stacks, which allows us to record that session so that we can then kind of ingest and configure that code. Um, so we found a really efficient, actually there's no precedent for the level of efficiency we have here. <laughs> there's no precedent by far because we we can support a service for less than $100, mm -hmm. um, which means that we can be ready to start marketing in a new country for about $600. Um, that's no one does that. Yeah. Um, so we have a really efficient way to scale service coverage. But there's a difference between availability and focus, mm. right? So we're focusing on a few markets, but we're well, trying to be available way. everywhere. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I forgot the question I was about to ask just now. I said, uh, okay, yeah, um, the market opportunities massive, right? Mm. The amount of people that can be impacted by this um, app and, and this product is a lot, right? Mm -hmm. The adoption also has been really great, right? People are interested, people are using it. Yeah. But what are some challenges that you've also faced in just like building stacks? Yeah, so I mean, kind of wearing my hat, I'm, you know, the CEO hat, I'm always thinking about um, cash in the bank, culture vision, um, and uh, kind of team alignment. Uh, and so I think just fundraising is always, uh, that's always top of mind for me. So I hate fundraising, but it's my <laughs> job. So even when we're successful, that's a challenge to me. So I'll list that one. Um, but beyond that, I think, you know, the biggest challenge for any company, and I don't think this affects us so much, but it's it's around communication and alignment. So does the team share the same mission? Do we have one mission? Do we communicate well? And have we created a foundation of psychological safety where we can, really players can lead and take big risks? Yeah. Because in, in an elite team, players lead. Um, and so for me, I think the challenge has been um, figuring out how to create that environment as a CEO. Because in my last company, I wasn't so conscious of, mm -hmm. of that. And we did have silos form. Um, and we had kind of tribes that, that, that became partisan, you know. And so um, that's something I put a lot of thinking into is in this organization is the design of our organization um, to ensure that um, every person on the team is resourced to do their best work and feels safe to take big risk. Um, and that's a constant challenge because that's the most important thing yeah. you can possibly do. And it's not a set it and forget it. That, that requires 
thousands of little interactions where you can uh, further express trust. You can reinforce, hey, sure you failed, but you learned something. This is good. Keep going. Do it again. Do more. Do bigger. You know. Yeah. Um, I'd say that's that's where I spend almost all of my time when I'm not fundraising. Uh, there are smaller challenges beyond that, but it's nothing so interesting. I think it's you know it's like you know you've got you're you're working through uh, you're working through bugs. You've got a product roadmap, um, just kind of standard startup stuff. Okay, makes sense. And this is my final question. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned in this interview is that you spent the last 12 years mm -hmm. in the African fintech ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, earlier you also mentioned, I mean, you're you full-blown American, right? You grew mm -hmm. up in lots of different places in South America. Totally. How has building in Africa for the five years that you lived here actively yeah. and for Africa um, really changed who you are as a person? It's forced me to mature and it's forced me to become more self-aware uh, and you know kind of going back especially like I'm a white male who grew up in the American South in a middle-class family <laughs> so that that has some connotation um, and you know I, I I think especially like when I talked about being shaken when my grandfather took me to Southeast Asia I think I needed to be shaken uh, to kind of wake up and see the world as it really is um, and so I think being being like a, a white American working uh, for uh, an African market um, has just forced me to grow uh, all the time um, and so I'm really grateful for that um, and it's helped me better understand myself uh, it's helped me better understand what my values are and it's helped me better kind of course correct and realize when I'm not living to my values or I'm being passive mm. you know and just letting uh, letting things that shouldn't be be um, so I'd say personal growth is the greatest part. I don't know if that's what you're trying to get at at the question. But that's okay. I mean, I wasn't getting that into I just wanted to know. Yeah, I mean, just personal growth. And like, I could not be more challenged. I love interacting with people from different uh, backgrounds. I love, I love like the convergence of cultures. Mm. Um, you know, I, I love the creativity that you can get when you get people with different backgrounds in a room together and they and they're free to speak what they honestly believe and to, to bring that background i think that's what we have to do um, all of us have to do uh, to build to build the better future uh, and so i'm grateful that i've had that opportunity it's made me a much better person um, i still have work to do you know? <laughs> yeah amazing and i said that was my last question but i think this is the final one maybe not though we'll find out um, do you think that Hova is a great place to work and why? And why should other people who might want to work at Hova come? Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course I'm biased, you know, <laughs> like, uh, but I'd say, yeah, like we, we care deeply about mission and we care deeply about our culture. And um, and it's, it, I'll just be repeating myself, but like what I, I want this to be a place where you can do your best work. I want this to be a place where you feel safe. I want this to be a place where you can take risk. And I want this to be a place that is a stepping stone for your next thing in your career. You know, I, I see us, I recognize that um, we only get to work with teammates in a, in a, a brief flash in their career, right? Uh, kind of, I think Reed Hoffman calls it like tours of duty. But um, one of my greatest kind of joys is just, I want this to be a place where we can invest in our people um, and we can see them go off to bigger, better things and celebrate that. Um, and so this is a place where if you're at Hover, we will invest in you. We will listen to you, you will be heard and you will see your opinions get into the product. Um, and it's also a place where mutual respect, like we're, I, I think between the founders, we're all, you know, we, we spent the last few years in, in the Pacific Northwest. We kind of have that, that Pacific Northwest vibe. It's like, I just chill, just chill. <laughs> you know, it's okay. Yeah. Like no need to be hot tempered, no need to be too high stress. Um, so uh, yeah, like we, I, I would, I think it's a great place to work. I love the team. I think the team is our greatest asset that's always true but but especially like the that my biggest duty um, outside of making sure we don't run out of cash <laughs> is um, is to make sure that those things are happening that those investments are happening you know I have one-on-ones with every teammate um, at least once a month and I'll do that no matter how big this company gets you know maybe fact check me when we're <laughs> hundreds of people but the whole point of that is just that you have a seat at the table and I'm seeking information out and I, I also want to make sure that um, if we're, there's incongruence between what we say and what we do, there's the, that's the say-do gap, that I'm, I'm seeking that out, I'm looking for it so that we can fix it. Yeah, amazing. Um, and yeah, final, final question. Is there anything that you have wanted me to ask you or that you have wanted to answer that I didn't? 
No, I, I think just generally, like I've I've enjoyed working in the the startup ecosystem over this time, and I've I've had like in in just gotten to know so many great uh, entrepreneurs and operators. Um, and so I, one thing I'd just share for them is just, you know, I've been in this for 12 years. In some ways, I'm a deep domain expert, mm -hmm. and I still feel imposter syndrome every day. <laughs> you know, I, I think about this all day, probably all night. <laughs> you know, I'm really focused on this, uh, and I still feel like an imposter. Um, it's the industry is so dynamic, it's changing so quickly. And if you're looking at the Pan-African opportunity, I mean, thousands of languages, tens of countries, you know, like it's, um, it's just really exciting. And the reason I'm bringing that up is just to say that there are no experts. Yeah. And so if you're, if you have an idea and you want to just start and jump and you have the, the opportunity to take a big jump. Um, don't hesitate because you think like, I'm not an expert. Um, I don't feel like an expert. And I can tell you when I have one-on-ones with CEOs of even large companies in the sector, that vulnerability comes out mm. and everyone's going like, really I'm no just idea. figuring this out as I go. Like, yeah. we're just trying to keep this plane from crashing. Yeah. Um, so that's all to say, like, take the leap. Don't be intimidated. Um, and also ask for help. You know, one of the things I've seen is like the the founder community, the entrepreneur community, um, really is very mutually supportive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if I can be a resource, reach out. I'm available. Um, and that's one of my joys is to help see people like do the thing and um, contribute to the ecosystem because we, we want to have a good outcome. We're a company, yeah. but I really care about the ecosystem. ecosystem. Uh, and I think we all have to because that's that's how we build that future together. Yeah, amazing. I think that's a perfect way to end the video. So take the leap, don't be intimidated and ask for help. Yes, great help. Excellent help. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ben, for you know you, sharing please. me and teaching me more about the product, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, thank you so much for listening to this podcast to the end. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I hope that you have been inspired or motivated to get better in your careers, in your businesses, in your life. I hope this, you enjoyed it. If you did, please make sure you subscribe to the videos on my YouTube channel at PCTME or just search for Founders Connect and you'll find the playlist and then subscribe to the channel. Also, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to it. Leave a rating also so more people can find it and also talk about the episode that you listen to hashtag founders connect across social media hey i'll see you in the next episode peace out